Well, good morning, Sailorville. If you brought a copy of Scripture with you this morning, you can find Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2, as we talk about spiritual congruence, and I'll explain that. And I hope, hopefully, the explanation in the text will make it clear that that's exactly what this passage of Scripture that we're in is all about, spiritual congruence. The word is a good word, and it comes from uh, one of my favorite authors uh, in recent years, one of my heroes of the faith who went to be at the Lord a few weeks ago, Eugene Peterson, who famously is the author of the paraphrase, uh, the message uh, translation of the Bible. In his book, When Kingfishers Catch Fire, what a, what a title, huh? Uh, he talks about the beauty of spiritual uh, congruence. When something is congruent, it, it's coming together, it's seamless. It's, when you saw Paul up here uh, strumming the guitar or the, or the uh, electric guitar, you don't think, wow, look at the matching between the, the fingers and the strings and the sounds. No, it's just all seamless, and you just enjoy the results, right? So spiritual congruence is when our lives come together with our faith, with what we believe. When, it's a beautiful thing when they come together, isn't it? It's a seamless match. And by the way, when it doesn't, this is the reason why we're warned in passages like James, when James says, be doers of the word, not hearers only, what? Deceiving your own selves. If it's not congruent. It's not coming together. Something's not working here. And by the way, Jesus saved his most scathing denunciations for hypocrites, right? And what's a hypocrite? But somebody who's not spiritually congruent. They're not seamless. They're not coming together. And none of us are perfect. We all play the role of the hypocrite. Can I get an amen from time to time? But, but there, should be, there should be this, this, uh, this tracking, this trajectory in our lives that's spiritually congruent with what we believe. So, when we left off last week, we have, the, we have a command and an inspiration. God doesn't just give us a command. He inspires us when he says, work out. That is, he's talking to those who are Christians, and I know some of you aren't, but we'll talk to you as well. But to those of you who are, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. That's the command. Here's the inspiration. God is at work in you. Uh, both, both to affect your affections, both to will and to work, to empower your actions to do his goodwill, right? So there's both command and inspiration there. But what does working out your salvation actually and practically look like? That's what this passage we come upon today is all about. The avenues that bring apart, uh, albeit imperfect, a spiritual congruence in our lives. And there are negatives and positives, as you would imagine, because remember Paul said to a couple of other churches, put off the old man and put on the new man, created in Christ Jesus, right? So that's where we left off. Here's where we pick it up. Verse 14, chapter 2. Do all things without grumbling or complaining. Now you'll be glad I don't develop an entire message just on this. That you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish. Now watch the prepositional phrases. In the midst of a crooked and perverse or twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in this world. Holding fast to the word of life. Or literally the Greek says to hold forth. 
It carries the idea of presenting something, holding forth the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Obviously, he's concerned about that. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I'm glad and will rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. He's picturing them as a, he's picturing, this is, he's using sacrificial language here. Back in Bible times, there would be an offering on the, on the flame, on the altar, and then you might put a libation or an offering on top of the offering. That's what Paul's talking about here. He says, I'm the offering on top of your offering. Very interesting, and we'll come back to that. So, I see four ways in this passage of Scripture that salvation beautifully works its way out in those who are followers of Jesus. And as I said, there's negative and there's positive. First, the negative. Here's the negative. Right? Ready for this? Stop whining like the world does. Does anybody here watch the news? I do. Jeez, everybody is whining. If you're a politician, it doesn't matter if you're a Democrat or a Republican, you're whining. Everybody's whining. And you got, you got actors who hate who we are wanting out of the country and foreigners who love what we have wanting in. And in, and in between, everybody's just whining. Everybody's complaining. Uh, the, the phrases there in, that we live in a crooked and twisted, you see those two words are the word crooked there. We get our English word scoliosis with this word, the curvature of the spine. That's the word. And the word twisted is exactly what it sounds like. Messed up. And would you agree this is a messed up world, right? But don't miss the point. You want to know how a messed up world conveys itself, how it demonstrates itself, how it shows us they're messed up. They whine and complain incessantly. Now that brings it home, doesn't it? There ought to be such a contrast between the church and the world that the lost should want in just to get the joy that's coming out of this place. I talked to a woman here just the other day. I hadn't seen her for a long, long time, a, a member of the church years ago. And, uh, I mean, she was, I mean, she was, I don't even know how to describe her. I'll just say I saw her. And she came up to me and she said, oh, I have to tell you, Pastor, there's a gal in your church who just came to Christ uh, not too long ago, and I work with her, and she's the first person I've ever worked with that didn't hate me. I was completely conflicted in the moment. I thought I wanted to praise the Lord for this lady who's working in her life, which I did. And by the way, I've told her how grateful I am to her. And I'm thinking, don't you get it? You're naming the name of Christ and you live incessantly whining, incessantly complaining, murmuring and disputing and complaining and grumbling. The word grumbling is an onomatopoetic word. It's like pow, slash, swoosh. Those are onomatopoetic words. That's what this word is. It actually sounds, the Greek word sort of sounds like the word. Just making noise, grumbling, something under your breath. Anybody ever grumble under their breath? And God takes complaining seriously. He killed people in the Old Testament for this. You say, well, yeah, well, that was the Old Testament. Okay, well, then read 1 Corinthians 10, 11. 
when he refers to that time he did it, where he sent a destroying angel, he says, oh, by the way, this, these things were written as examples to us. So there you go. The word disputing means to argue. Some of your Bibles translate it that way. Again, it can, conveys the idea of incessant, ungodly bickering over everything. We were with some extended family around Thanksgiving, and this one individual comes in, and every time I can expect it, just constant bickering, constant arguing, always taking everything to task. And if you think you have the spiritual gift of arguing, and I've heard people talk like this, you better read this. It's exasperating. And by the way, it does seem that there must have been like a low-grade temperature here in Philippi uh, because one doesn't just say stop arguing and disputing unless something's going on there. We you know we've got these two women in chapter 4 fighting it out. I can't wait to get to them. It seems like I reference them every single week. But something was going on. And remember, this is an epistle. Remember, our theme is joy, the joyful life. And, and there's something missing. That's why Paul keeps talking about the joy we need, because they don't have it, just like some of you don't have it, because you're constantly whining. There's a powerful scene as I was studying this. Uh, I remember talking about things that are congruent, and when we're like this, when we whine and complain, we're incongruent with our faith. Our faith should be a joyful faith. Can I get a witness to that? And it should be a ministering faith. It should be a sacrificial faith. Uh, I, my mind went to Luke 7 uh, as I was studying this. That's the scene where that woman who's called sinful, she comes in, she wipes Jesus' feet with her hair, and all the religious leaders are repulsed by the whole thing. Oh, and then the religious leader in the home begins, has a theological debate with Jesus and never lifts his finger to minister to Jesus. The hypocrisy is rife and Jesus calls him out. I wonder how much energy we would save if instead of walking around constantly whining, constantly complaining, we would be humble, we would help, we would encourage, we would minister, we would love, we would teach, we would win someone. Because when salvation is coming out of you, those rotten attitudes that you had before you were in, before you were in Christ that killed joy should also be going out as well. They're joy killers. So stop whining like the world does. Okay, that's the put off. Okay, another put off and a put on. Stop isolating and start insulating. Okay, and, and by the way, and here's, here's, the, here's the spiritual congruence. Je listen to this. Jesus associated with sinners without sinning. And you can too. That's the congruence here. Jesus associated with sinners without sinning, and we can too. That's good news, isn't it? That's good news. And you see in verse 15, he, he says that we be blameless, innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom we shine as lights. Now, there's a congruence there, spiritually speaking. Vance Havner, the great Southern Baptist preacher now with the Lord, famously said that Christians should be insulated, not isolated. Moving in the midst of evil, but untouched by it. That's cool, isn't it? 
the monks of medieval times thought that the most spiritual thing they could do would be to isolate themselves. One sat on a pillar for months at a time. Some stayed in caves. You know what I want to say to those monks if I could talk to them? You know what I'd like to say to them? I'd like to say to them, have you ever read this? Because that's not what this is saying. Look at these two prepositional phrases. You ought to underline them if you're looking at a Bible, an actual text. In the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. And then the next prepositional phrase, among whom you shine as lights in this world. Listen, listen carefully, friends. This isn't isolation. This isn't even separation. We should separate from immoral practices, not immoral people. Oh, there is an exception. 1 Corinthians 5 says we should separate from immoral people who name the name of Jesus that don't live congruent with their faith. Huh? Huh? Lights are going off. Oh, by the way, stop. Stop expecting non-Christians to act like Christians. That's the dumbest thing I've ever seen and heard from Christians who ought to know better. You betray your ignorance when you expect Christian actions out of non-Christians. They don't have any, they have no power to do that. Our job is to be in the midst of them and among them shining his lights. You say, well, that sounds pretty risky. It is. And we can be impacted There can be adverse effects. There are risks. We might even sin from time to time. But it's worth it. And I think the text is telling us it's worth it to live in the midst, not be isolated, but be insulated. Remember, Jesus took risk, and he was accused of being a drunkard and a glutton, remember? Because he refused to isolate. And if you're one of those individuals that thinks that isolation is spiritual, just the opposite is true. You're sinning. Because you're going against the very purpose of your existence in this world to move in the midst and be among those who are lost. Jude warned us that we might get stained in our attempts to reach sinful people. So the point here is insulate, don't isolate. You insulate yourself with the word of God. You never take this book lightly. You need it every day. It's a part of your spiritual insulation so that you can move in the midst of evil and be untouched by it. You need the word of God. You need prayers to God. You need people that will hold the ropes for you, so to speak. Like Carrie said, I'm going to go down into the pit of India if you'll hold the ropes. We hold the ropes of one another, when we pray for one another, and when we every day put on the armor of God that we may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. Amen? Those are ways we insulate, don't isolate. Thirdly, and just totally positively, let your light for Jesus shine. That's what the text is saying. Again, look in the middle of verse uh, 15 among whom you shine as lights in this world. And here's the spiritual congruence, all right? Jesus is the light of the world, right? And he's called us to be the same. Jesus is the light of the world, and he's called you and me who know him to be the same. Again, look at it. You shine as lights in this world. 
So believer in Jesus, do what you're called to do. Shine for him. And here he tells them how to do it. Verse, six, uh, 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 verse 16, holding forth the word of life. That's how you do it. You hold forth the word of life. We have no light in ourselves. We're holding forth the light that's been placed in us in Christ, right? That's what we're doing. How many of you have a flashlight somewhere in your house? Raise your hand if you do, okay? We're still, okay, most of us still do. I mean, is your flashlight like ours? They never work when you need them. They're either dead or dim or just sort of flicker in and out. Either way, they're worthless. And that's the way some of you are. You're either dead because you really don't know Jesus, there's no light in you, or you're so dim because of this whining and complaining that's, that's so descriptive of the world that nobody wants to be, no one's drawn to you anyway. The other day I was in an airplane coming back from Toledo, Ohio, and I sat next to a chemical engineer very successful man, has a great family, kids are highly educated, and God just opened up a beautiful opportunity for me to hold forth the word of life to him. And he just leaned into me, said, repeatedly said, I just needed this, thank you so much. Here is a man who is highly successful and totally lost. What was I doing in the moment? I was holding forth the word of life. A guy in our church told me just the other day he's going to a gym, not the one I go to, because in this gym he's, got, he's met a guy, he's meet with a guy, he's matching up times to meet together so he can hold forth the word of life. Our ladies met for the last two nights with Rejoice 500 and some women in here, and we had not one, not two, but three women up here sharing their stories, holding forth the word of life. That's what we do. That's what we're called to do. And it's not just to the lost. We have to, we hold it forth to one another, do we not? On the other hand, we're offering the word of life to a world that's dead. Let's get that down. This is called the word of what? Life. This is a life-giving book. Its words are life-giving words. This is what we extend. We extend it by acting, and when we extend the word of life, we're acting, listen to this, we're acting consistently with the faith that we claim to have. If it's been placed in you. Remember, we said the congruence is Jesus is the light of the world. And he's called us to be the same. What did Jesus say in John 8, 12? I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not, will no longer walk in darkness, but have the light of life, right? So what's that got to do with you and me? Well, Jesus again said, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who's in heaven. So we extend, we hold forth the word of life to those who are lost and to one another. I've received communication this week two, three, four times from individuals who are in desperate situations in their lives. They're Christians but they're having troubles in their marriage. They're Christians. They're having trouble with their kids. They're Christians. They're having trouble with somebody else. And what do they need? What can I give them? I give them a word of life. That's what I give them because that's what they need. That's what I need, don't you? You say when you're reaching people, when we, when we move in the midst of evil without being, t and trying not to be, t aren't we, is, is, does this not get kind of risky? Yes, it does. But what's the worst that could happen? 
you die. If you're a Christian, that's not so bad. I'm reading an autobiography of John Patton, the great missionary to the New Hebronese Islands, which were filled with cannibals. And before he went, one of his leaders said, a, a certain Mr. Dixon said, and, and I quote, he said, the cannibals, you'll be eaten by cannibals. To which John Patton replied with this classic line, Mr. Dixon, you are advanced in years now, and your own prospect is soon to be laid in the grave, there to be eaten by worms. I confess to you that if I can but live and serve uh, and die serving and honoring the Lord Jesus, it makes no difference to me whether I'm eaten by cannibals or by worms. And in the great day, my resurrection body will ri rise as fair as yours in the likeness of the risen Redeemer. How beautiful is that? And this is how, when we shine for Jesus, this is how we act consistently with our faith. We stop this incessant whining, we insulate, we don't isolate, and we hold forth the word of life. It was life to you, it can be life to someone else, right? And finally, finish with the joy of having offered yourself as a living sacrifice. Finish with the joy of having, meaning you've already done it, you're going to do it, you will do it, of being a living sacrifice. And here's the spiritual congruence. Christ died as a sacrifice for us. We live as a sacrifice for him. Right? Isn't that what we're told in the scripture? Also, by the way, Greg Pollock, our third church planner's favorite life verse is in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, where it says, He died for all, that those who live may no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and, and was raised for them. Paul, in this la these last few verses, is really concerned. He's very concerned that his work amongst them not be wasted because he's hearing about their complaining. And that, that, spell, that speaks of possibly wasted work. Look at the end of uh, uh, in verse 16, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I, watch this, did not run in vain or labor in vain. Now, by the way, every pastor and Christian worker, evangelist, they all, we all worry about people who come to know Jesus under our tutelage. I mean, they trust Jesus, and you're always a little concerned. I don't know why. We, we got the promise of chapter 1, verse 6, being confident of this very thing. He who began a good work, and you will bring it to completion, right? But we always kind of wonder if it's real, if it took, you know. In my first church, I led a guy to Christ, the most messed up guy I've ever led to Christ. I mean, the guy tried to kill his wife. Literally, he was in prison for doing that. He was a scary looking dude. In fact, so scary, one of my younger daughters, when he started coming to church, said, Daddy, he's a scary man. And he was a scary man. We had to keep our eye on him constantly in the early days. We didn't know what he was going to do. I mean, what's going to happen? I mean, I wondered if my labor was in vain. I just saw him a few weeks ago. He is a living sacrifice for Jesus Christ. He is a bright, shining light. Nobody thinks he's a scary man anymore. The gospel's transformed his life. And I have to tell you, I was thinking about this as I look around the Sailorville church. I called one individual out that was sitting right in the front row in the first service. 
I mean, your lives, so many of your lives have gone from being messed up, dead, in trespasses and sins, just completely shipwrecked, to being alive in Christ. The word of life has given you life, and it gives this preacher joy. And I want you to know that. And so, I think what Paul is saying to the Philippians, he would say to us, if you have this joy in you, then finish well with the joy of having lived your life as a living sacrifice. Remember what he said to the Romans? I beg you, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you commit your life as a living, what? Sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service, a living sacrifice. I know there's a famous line that says the only problem with living sacrifices is they keep crawling off the altar. We're supposed to be living sacrifices. Paul's concerned that he didn't run in vain or labor in vain. Everybody worries about that. Remember, he told the Corinthians, this is, sounds like a contradiction, but he said to the Corinthians, he said, he said, be steadfast and unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. For as much as you know, your labor is not in vain when it's in the Lord, right? That's what he said. So why, why should he be concerned about vain results? By the way, he wasn't just concerned for the believers in Philippi that some of their faith might be vain. He was concerned about what was going on in Galatia. He said, I'm afraid that I may have labored over you in what? Say it. Vain. He said to the Corinthians, and by which he's talking about the gospel, you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed what? In vain to the Corinthians and also to the Thessalonians. For this reason, when I, I couldn't bear it any longer, I sent to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. So four churches. So you think we ought to be concerned about some of your faith? Because some of your faith is vain. There's no light in you. And so there's nothing coming out. It's not impossible to work out your salvation. Salvation hasn't been worked into you. But to the Christian worker. What 1 Corinthians 15, 58, that says your labor is never in vain in the Lord. That's the key. As long as your work is not for vanity, it will never be in vain. So be encouraged by that. We don't serve Jesus for the results of serving him. We serve Jesus for the rejoice of serving him. And because he's worthy, so follower of Jesus Follow him, love him, serve him, and serve others, offering yourself as a living sacrifice to and for Jesus and leave the results to him, right? The missionary to children who were orphans, Amy Carmichael, wrote a beautiful poem that went like this, give me the love that leads the way, the faith that nothing can dismay, the hope no disappointments tire, 
the passion that burns like fire. Let me not sink to be a clod. Make me your fuel, flame of God. That's a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is, by the way, your reasonable service, right? So I ask you, Christian, are you working out your salvation with fear and trembling? Be inspired. God's working in you, both to affect your affections and to empower your actions. And how does it work? You're not a whiny, complaining person, grumbler anymore. If that's you, would you repent of that as we come to the communion table? Will you repent of this? Some of you have thought your spiritual gift is isolation from everybody. That's a sin. God has called you to be in the midst of the lost, among whom were to shine his lights in this world. Would you repent of that, of your isolation, and commit yourself to be insulated? Will you do that? And will you say, God, make me shine for you as a living sacrifice that might impact a world that desperately needs to see what a difference Jesus makes. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Our Father, we're grateful today as we have opened up the word and looked into your message to the Philippian church. It's a message to us. Paul was concerned that his labor be not in vain, not because he didn't, not because he himself served it up wrongly, but because he was concerned that some of their faith wasn't real. I'm concerned for people in this room, their faith isn't real. It's just lip service. It's not congruent with their claim. And dear one, if that's you, by the way, as we pray, you would say, that's me. There's nothing congruent between my faith that I claim and my life that I live. Then you're probably not a Christian. So if you're sorry for your sins, humble your heart and trust Jesus right now who died and rose again for you. And for those of us who do know you, Lord, help us to be committed to this life of working out our salvation with fear and trembling, with the confidence that it is you working in us both to affect our affections and empower our actions all for your glory. Now as we come to your table, Lord Jesus, may we do so humbly, quietly, remembering your perfect life as symbolized in the bread and your sacrificial blood as symbolized in the juice. We ask these things in Jesus' name, amen.